And it's happy birthday from me to Cindy Lauper, born 1953. Cultural icons never die, says the Miami New Times. Lauper offers a blueprint for the female rock stars of today, from Gaga to Hayley Williams. Fads fade, pop trends burn, but songwriters like Cindy Lauper are evergreen. Happy birthday. It's so true, isn't it? She's just fantastic. Yeah, she is pretty cool. More and, than that. Yeah, I think, from memory, I can't see a photo of her at the moment, but I think she's still rocking the same look yeah. that she had in the 80s. She's committed. Mm. You'd, like you'd recall... Uh, you'd recall Cindy Lauper. You'd recall these students, wouldn't you, David Farrer? Of course, yes, yeah. as a boy of the 80s. or yeah. I, I was still a boy in the 80s, so yes. <laughs> <laughs> it is 25 to 5, the panel uh, in Z. National, by the way, uh, due to flooding the following roads are now closed. State Highway 2, Matawai to Ormond, State Highway 35, Okita to Ruatoria. And do avoid the area and delay your journey. Uh, we will have updates for you regarding uh, the weather and traffic on RNZ National, of course. Now, the search for the Titan sub missing around the Titanic shipwreck continues after banging sounds were heard by the US Coast Guard, but oxygen is dwindling and is expected to run out around 10pm tonight, as you heard Marama saying that there's probably around 10 hours uh, left there. The seven-metre sub lost communication on Monday, only 50 minutes from the ocean floor. Five people are missing, a British adventurer, a French diver, a Pakistani father and son, and the founder of Ocean Gate Expeditions, the company that operated the tour. With us is engineering lecturer from the University of Adelaide, Eric Fusi, also um, somewhat of a, um, has had a long-standing interest over 20 years in submarines. Um, uh, Eric, kia ora. welcome to the panel. Kia ora. thanks for having me. Yeah, I guess the first question now f- from us to you is, is there still hope at this stage? I think that there is still hope, but we will need a lot of luck. Um, we are really trying to find that um, needle in the haystack. We've got already two remotely operated uh, vehicles that are trying to map the seafloor to find Titan. There will be an, a third one with a multi-beam echo sonder that will be able to create a, a 3D map of uh, the seafloor, but it's a, such a wide area to search. Mm. There are so many questions surrounding this, and I'm sure that more will come to light. Um, if found, what would be the protocol for bringing a sub at this depth up to the surface? So we know that under normal circumstances, uh, it takes two hours to raise from uh, basically the sea bottom to the surface. So assuming that uh, a rover with a robotic arm can find the Titan and assess what the problem is. Um, that robot could basically create some gentle push, a positive buoyancy to bring the Titan close to the surface. But then that does not stop there. We will need to have the Titan to go back on her berth and then to be hosted onto her mothership to finally be able to open the bolted hatch and free the passengers uh, that are on board. Gosh. Now, we've got a panel with us. Uh, Eric, they'll be wanting some questions. In terms of the communication, others have been asking, what, what about the lack of communication? What about GPS or other communications? What of that aspect? So, simply put, there is nothing with a radio uh, or electromagnetic waves that does work 
underwater below a few tens of meters. So we rely only on acoustic means. This is why we evolved acoustic means. We've got very, very small data rate. Uh, that explains why the Titan could only you know, send some so- short text messages from uh, below to uh, the mothership. And that's the only thing that works. So even the multi-beam sounder that I, I was mentioning are creating a, an acoustic map. So it's a 3D image based on the echo uh, from the sound emitted by uh, the rob. It's pitch black. It's very cold. Uh, not a lot of things do work at those depths. Goodness. Nikki. This is, I can't think of a situation I would want to be in less than this. It's a horror movie scenario, really being trapped in that situation. Um, Eric, I wanted to ask, this is a thing that I've wondered, is it a necessity or is it a design flaw that this thing can only be opened from the outside when it's on the surface? That they can't, there's no way for them to get out of there without that. I think it's a design decision by the um, owner and the designer of of the Titan. Um, I think we have to, to, to remind the audience that Titan is one of the very few submarines or submersibles going towards depth that is not made or designed according to some classification societies. It means that, you know, we've got all those companies, uh, the American Bureau of Shipping, uh, Bureau of Veritas, Laws register that are creating sets of rules to go to those depths. And there are some safety rules to ensure that if you follow these rules, then you can dive with a minimum of safety. So there are some concerns, but those decisions made by the designer and the operator of the Titan may not have been that wise, and uh, that may explain why we are in such a tragedy at this point in time. Let's bring you in, David Farrow. Um, I'm wondering what the history has been in terms of uh, rescuing submarines that have got into trouble. This seems to be a very difficult rescue because of the depth it may be at. But do we know how often in the past where a submarine has needed rescuing, has it been able to be done successfully and and and? down to what depth. So would this be unprecedented if they managed to do it? I, uh, unfortunately, we, we don't have a very good track record about that. And the, the deepest rescue was with a PCS-3 in uh, 1973. We had two deep sea divers on a submersible that were successfully rescued. Um, and despite the advance in, in technology, um, things go wrong. So when we look at he says it was only by 500 meters. Here we are talking about 3,800 meters. And with pieces, we had a good idea about where they were. For Titan, it's too wide an area to, to have those same odds. Yeah, so it's very, very challenging to put yeah. it mildly. In terms of those banging noises detected, um, what of those, Eric? How do you how do you see those? A good sign or not really quite sure yet? I think it's a, it's a good sign. I mean, we had on board uh, that um, ex French Navy minor clearance diver, and as part of the training that uh, divers and submariners have in the military in all navies worldwide, we are trained to say, look, if you are grounded on the 
bottom of the sea in a submarine. Just make sure that at a regular interval, you make some noise to show that you are alive and the rescue party can basically spot that you are a human being trapped somewhere under the sea and not, you know, a, a marine mammal or something like that. So, so that's a good sign. And I think that it shows that at some stage, we had someone on board with still uh, the, the cool mind to think, okay, this is what I need to make to sure, to ensure that I will be heard and to increase the odds of being found. Finally, uh, Eric, can I, I've, I have to ask you this. As a person who's followed um, the submarine uh, industry, I guess, for 20-plus years, would you take a trip? to see the Titanic? Uh, look, when I was younger, I wasn't aware of the risk. And, you know, with maturity and being in the business, I think you tend to focus more on, on the risks than the possibilities. So I would have asked a lot of guarantees, uh, and typically that submersible to be designed and manufactured according to some classification rules to be tested according to the same rules before going into those depths. So my, my answer is yes, but with those rules and with those evidence. Very good. Thank you so much for being with us. That's engineering lecturer from the University of Adelaide, long-time submarine expert Eric Fusi on uh, the panel. It's 16 to 5. Can I just tuck in here while I've got the time? Because Nikki Bazant, it's been quite interesting. There's been quite a bit of feedback about sitting on the floor. <laughs> if you've just joined us, uh, listeners, uh, Nikki and her, I've been thinking, uh, said, uh, look, we need to sit on the floor more. Um, good afternoon, Wallace. I'm in the panel. I'm 50. I sit on the floor for hours. And I'm very flexible. I have less pain in my body and I think I'm happier. Susanna. See, there you go. Tahi. Gosh. There's a living um, example. Megan, 69. I'm on the floor sorting photos now. And this morning, as a volunteer shower at the library, I was up and down lots. Yep. Shirley says, millions sit on the floor globally. I attended Hare Krishna recently, and most were sitting on the floor. You, 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 you set a challenge for me, didn't you? You said it's, the, the real challenge, the real skill, mm. is to try and get off the floor without using your hands. Yes. Okay. Now, if you listen to the show, if you listen to the show tomorrow, I will try it. Okay. I've right. never, I've never tried it before. Yeah. I've never tried getting up off the floor without using my hands. There's lots of ways you can do it, and and there is a there is a correlation apparently that if you if you are able to do this, then you're gonna. It's a good sign that you're gonna live longer. Seriously. Yeah. I'm gonna do it. Tomorrow on the panel. Watch some videos on YouTube, Wallace, to prepare yourself. <laughs> 15 to 5, uh, Nikki Bazan, David Farrow with me this afternoon. Well, New Zealand's first firearm registry is set to go live Saturday, nearly four years after it was proposed following the Christchurch mosque terror attacks. Police and gun control advocates say the system will be an essential tool in reducing firearm harm, but... A spokesperson for the Council of Licensed Firearm Owners said licensed firearm users are being unfairly targeted. With us is Gun Control NZ co-founder Philippa Yasbeck. Uh, Philippa, kia ora. Kia ora. So, pretty significant day in the in New Zealand history, really, isn't it? Uh, we have a firearms registry. It's been long talked about. Uh, will this reduce firearm harm, do you think? What's the evidence? 
Absolutely. Um, there's some quite strong evidence from Canada when they brought their registry in that the rates of firearms violence and thefts from legal gun owners went down. And when they unfortunately abolished their, their register for political reasons, um, those rates went back up. Um, we know that almost all of the firearms used in criminal offences in New Zealand originally come from legal firearms owners. And um, the police have recently been tracing back firearms retrieved at crime scenes. And they've been finding that they're often um, bought in bulk by uh, what they call straw man purchasers. These are people with a firearms license to go in and buy 10, 15, 20 of the same firearms item and then on sell them to to gangs and organised crime groups. And that behaviour should actually be stopping from as soon as the register comes in because um, all the dealer transactions will be on the register from day one. All right, so after June 24, it's a couple of days, isn't it? Uh, the country's nearly uh, 240,000 licensed gun owners have up to five years to register their firearms using this new online system. What about you, David Farrow? Do you think it's going to make a difference? Do you support it or not? Well, I hope it makes a difference, but I do worry, and we heard about the Canadian gun registry, and as I understand it, one of the reasons why that failed is they were told the cost would be $2 million, and the cost turned out, and I've checked these figures, to be $2.7 billion over time. And what we don't know yet is, yeah, hopefully in New Zealand, we have avoided that problem of a massive uh, blowout in costs where it becomes so expensive to maintain um, that people then question the value of it. Um, but as early days, if it can reduce, I think we have on average 10 gun deaths a year. Uh, that's 10 tragedies. If it can reduce that, that's going to be a great thing. Okay, supporting with caveat. And by the way, I think I said registry, it's register, uh, I think. Or is it registry? Anyway, what did you make of what David said, Philippa? Um, it's a registry in the New Zealand legislation. Um, okay, David isn't quite right on the, the figures for Canada. It was closer to a billion, um, and that was for their entire firearms program, not just their register. They had a number of issues. They built a brand new IT system in the 90s to track all of their firearms. Um, costs have come down considerably since then. And the police have built the entire system, so they're reasonably sure what the costs are, and they definitely have not had any um, big cost blowouts. In fact, I understand that they're reasonably on budget for this. So I, I think the costs are reasonable, um, and there are definitely big differences with Canada, where they also tried to set up a whole a whole new um, agency at the same time as undertaking a massive IT project. So I, I think the costs are very reasonable. And um, if we look across at Australia... At the moment, they're actually just um, in the process of setting up a new national registry. They've previously had state-level registries, um, but they've decided to go national because of the benefits in um, tracking firearms as they move across state lines. Nikki? Yeah, I think this seems like a really, really sensible idea, and I can't. it's surprising that we haven't done it sooner. I've been trying to wrap my head around why gun owners legitimate and, and law-abiding gun owners would think it was a bad idea. I mean, what is the downside for them? Well, one of their concerns... David Sorry, first, go. David first, then Philippa. I understand one of the concerns comes to security, that if the system gets hacked or 
or leaks and the police have had an unfortunate track record uh, not long ago uh, in this regard that their security at home could be threatened because if gangs get hold of here's where all the guns in New Zealand are currently located, that's going to make them a target. And you know, I live in a rural area where recently a farmer not too far away had his shed broken into and the guns stolen from there. So people do worry um, about that gain, I think it's going to come down to the police need to prove uh, yeah, that this is not right. going to happen. Philippa, final point, off. security concerns? Um, they are reasonable, but um, the police have put in, I understand, security equivalent to what banks use for internet banking, so I think the risks are quite low. And um, we also hear from lots of gun owners who are quite happy about registration, even ones who oppose the buyback, think a register is a sensible idea. I think it's quite a small number um, of gun owners who are actually genuinely opposed to register. Okay, interesting, Philippa. Thank you for that. I uh, appreciate your time. That's the Gun Control NZ co-founder, Philippa Yazbek. Uh, so that comes in ooh, Saturday, uh, New Zealand's first firearms registry. Uh, so... Um, why don't you email me at the panel at rnz.co.nz uh, and we'll follow that up uh, tomorrow. I'll read some out your feedback out uh, in the Friday mailbag. Speaking of feedback, uh, Wallace, it's a shame that you say sitting on the floor is not for you. It really is a marker of health and mobility. I'm 55 and I can get up and down from the floor and to the floor without using my hands. There you go. With ease and mean to do so as long as I possibly can. The conventional and socially acceptable reliance upon chairs is not a good thing, says Hamish and Christchurch. Well, I'm going to try that tomorrow live on air. I'm going to try and get up from the floor without using my hands. But my point is why? (laughs) When you've got a lazy boy... Why, why would you sit on the floor? You can use the lazy boy sometimes. The idea is that you just, you just change position, you know, and when you are sitting on the floor. What for? So that you stay mobile. Oh, all right. Uh, it is um, 4.53, the panel, RNZ National, finally. The all-wise decision to take a stand against a fellow player being racially abused could empower other athletes, uh, says our next guest. The New Zealand football side collectively refused to take the pitch in the second half of their match against Qatar after defender Michael Boxall was allegedly racially abused by an opening player. New Zealand football chief executive Andrew Pragnall has said he is proud of the team's response. With us is AUT sports lecturer Dion Inara. He researches this particular uh, aspect of sports. Um, uh, Dr Inara, kia ora. Kia ora, Good to be here. <laughs> yeah, not, nice to have you, Dion. Is the tolerance for racist language on the pitch changing? I mean, the chief executive did not mince his words or attitudes. Uh, absolutely. You know, uh, going through my research and my own personal experiences, we actually have come a long way uh, in the last 20 years. I, you know, I remember as a child before when racial slurs were said, you know, people kind of bottled it in or or try to brush it off as we're now in 2023, we're calling it out there and then. So, yeah, absolutely awesome progress happening right now. It must be uh, in that reflective moment uh, as a personal, uh, as someone who's personally experienced it, it must be really great to see this um, progress and pretty hard to look back at how it was. 
Uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, and I and again, um, I must commend the whole team and and the management uh, for all taking a stand together. And this really shows that we, you know, we don't have to be passive bystanders, and we can be uh, forthright. And we 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 all have the power individually and collectively to stand against you know racial slurs that are wrong. Yeah, Nikki. Yeah, I agree. I don't follow sport particularly, but this story was was really interesting, and I agree with you, Dion, that that there was there was a real um, strength and power in that in that allyship that that whole team showed to that player, yeah. and I yeah. think that that was something really really amazing. Yeah, Dion, stay there, David Farrer. What I like about what happened, I mean, not that it happened. In fact. It's an irony that these were meant to be friendly matches and they were anything but. But it is that the incentive to not have it happen again is so great. In the past, someone might have then just got suspended for a couple of games. But when you have a team say, we're walking off, we're not finishing the game, all the spectators in the crowd get annoyed. They get angry. They will put pressure on the team that we're not going to turn up and watch if you say racist things, that means we don't actually get to see the game of soccer. I think the other teammates on the team, having seen now that the team will just walk off rather than just complain afterwards, yeah. is really going to incentivize this downward. So I think actually it's been very, very powerful and we'll get to see in the next few months, I guess, whether it has an impact. But... Um, you know, perhaps us tempering that with, of course, these were friendly games. What would be interesting would be if this was a World Cup game, would you do the same response? Because there you're balancing up um, that you you will lose the game potentially uh, to protest. Dion? Yeah, I believe, you know, that's a really good point. I believe that a lot of the different systems, sporting systems in place must be reviewed and must be designed in a way to ensure that it never has to get to that. So that, you know, I, I believe there should be a ratification of the rules in terms of policy and, and sport governance uh, to make it very clear that this is not only not tolerable in a friendly match, but this is not tolerable in international competitive matches as well. So I believe different sporting organisations and different bodies can actively uh, ensure this doesn't happen in their policies to ensure that we don't have to come through that crossroad. Yeah. Oh, wonderful to have you on, Dion, as always. Thank you for your time today. That's uh, AUT sports lecturer Dion Enari. Uh, someone says, uh, I you know, personally got more respect for the all whites uh, now. Proud to be a Kiwi when a team walks off the field because of racist abuse. Bring on the positive changes it may bring about. And uh, this getting up off the floor with your hands thing has taken off. <laughs> um, people are very interested about the show tomorrow where I'll do it live. Uh, Claire says, <laughs> I, <laughs> I just tried it for some reason now and I'm out of breath, but I did it. And I suffer from back injury. Oops, now pain is hitting me hard. Oops, probably wasn't a good idea. At least now I'm going to live longer. Great show, oh, says dear. Wallace. Uh, <laughs> so, okay, so maybe not, clear. But someone says here, Nikki, have you read the book by, is even a book about it, Galen Kranz, oh. The Chair, Rethinking Culture, Body and Design. It's well worth the read as a sitting down to put your shoes on. How about that? There you go. It's a bit of a thing. It's a thing. Sitting on the floor. Yep.
That is a thing. Well, I think that, you know, um, precluding injury, it's something we should all give a try to. Okay, Power Battle Friday. I'm going to try and get up off the floor tomorrow without using my hands. That'll be a hoot. Hey, David, Nikki, kia ora to you both. It has been fantastic. Thank you for your time. Kia ora, Wallace. I am Wallace Chapman, back tomorrow, 3.45. Checkpoint is next.